Thanks to this season's presenting sponsor, Kohler. They design innovative sinks and faucets for people who do their best work in the kitchen. There's a long list of things that we, as a society, once thought were safe. Safe to consume, safe to use, safe to be around, that we now know are pretty unhealthy, even deadly. Cigarettes were at one point prescribed for anxiety and toothaches. Arsenic was considered a cure for freckled skin, and children's toy sets were absolutely covered in lead paint. Now, there are things that we once thought were toxic that we now know are not, like tomatoes. Tomatoes were once blamed for everything, from black magic to death, or they could turn you into a werewolf. The Latin name for tomatoes translates to wolf peach. And it turns out that you can go swimming right after eating, and that wad of gum that you may have accidentally swallowed is not going to fester in your gut for seven years. Today on Proof, we tell the story of the man behind what we're calling American blood wine. A wine once thought to be dangerous, but is it? For decades, Hervé Gagné has been in a -a tête-à-tête with the French government to overturn what he calls a nonsensical ban on his wine. From America's Test Kitchen, I'm Bridget Lancaster, and this is Proof. Hi, Proof listeners, it's Bridget, and I want to tell you about NakedWines.com. It's a whole new way to buy wine. NakedWines.com will ship delicious, affordable wines directly to your home, all from independent winemakers worldwide. It's a great way to try new wines with no risk, because if you don't like a wine, they have a completely hassle-free money-back guarantee. And that's even if you drank the whole bottle. On their website, you can read reviews from other wine drinkers, and you can find advice for what wines to pair with your favorite meals. Go to nakedwines.com slash proof for $50 off your first order. Hervé Garnier has always kind of been this sort of laid-back nonconformist, a rebel, but not in a militant way, more in a live-and-let-live sort of way. This is Rebecca Rossman, a reporter based in Paris. Garnier is in his late 60s now. He's got a round face with short-cropped gray hair and a pointed nose. His most distinctive feature, however, is his wry grin that he greets people with. That's exactly the way he greeted me when he picked me up at a bus station not too far from his home, tucked within the Cévennes Mountains. That's where we're heading towards as we turn these sharp corners on a winding, steep road. I don't know if I could do this kind of driving. (laughs) I know you're an expert. (laughs) I I use this road maybe, uh, I don't know how many times. I can drive it very, very quick. Yeah? Yes, really. We're making some sharp turns. I'm I'm driving very (laughs) soft now. When he was 18 years old, Hervé decided to leave his home in Chemie, a small town in eastern France, and go on a trip to Wales. But he never made it there. He got lost less than 100 miles into his hitchhiking journey and ended up in the tiny village of Beaumont, in the Ardèche region of southeast France. He's been here ever since. Oh, I'm here since uh, 40, 45 years. I'm arrived by feet, 
1971. His arrival in Beaumont felt kind of like fate. Tucked within the mountains, the locals there have long been known as rebels, free spirits, meaning Hervé fit in perfectly. He was a roof builder at the time. Beaumont went through a lot of weather disasters in the last couple of decades, so Hervé became the go-to guy to help with roofing emergencies. Everyone in the town adored him. On top of his handiness, Hervé is also just the kind of person you want around if you're feeling stressed or on edge. We can stop two, five minutes if you want to visit. Okay. okay. He's got this sort of everything's going to be fine, contagious confidence that can help bring calm to the most chaotic of situations. Like the one I'm about to tell you more about. Hervé used to have these two neighbors, Jules and Paul. They were brothers who never married, lived together for decades. They had this tiny vineyard in front of their house where they grew their own grapes and made wine. That's where we're standing right now. No more grapes. Oh, but they're dried up. Tomorrow you will see some grapes. Tomorrow. They've already been picked. <laughs> Last week. We can see a little vine here of dried up grapes. <laughs> the brothers made a red wine, more ripe and fruity than your typical house red. It earned the nickname American Blood Wine. But when Jules and Paul got older, harvesting the grapes got harder on their bodies. And they asked Hervé if he could help. And the year after, the two brothers die. And the problem was, oh, the vineyard will disappear. Or somebody start again, continue. And at that moment, I decided to make an association to save the vineyard. When Jules and Paul died, Hervé started putting the paperwork together to take over the vineyard and start a small business. He thought he could sell the wine at a larger scale, but that's when he discovered... It's illegal. Yep. The wine that Jules and Paul had been making for decades, it was clandestine wine. The brothers were using this Franco-American hybrid grape, hence American blood wine. And in the 1930s, the French government passed this law outlawing what they called hybrid wines made with these grapes. But that made no sense to Hervé. I said, why? Forbidden? Why? I say, is that not normal? So Hervé started doing some research about this illegal red wine that was being produced in Beaumont, trying to figure out exactly why it was illegal to sell, according to French and European Union law. Let's start with the history. Okay, so we're walking in the hills of Ardèche in this vineyard where we just picked some grapes. It's on the hill, so it's kind of on a slope, which is, it gives you a beautiful view, but it's not great for people who are afraid of heights. The grapes have quite the story of their own. We are picking several kinds of grapes here, including Herbemont, Isabella, and Jacquet, all of which are used to make Hervé's wine. Now, all of these varieties are called hybrid grapes because they are a cross between a French grape and an American grape. And the story of how these hybrid varieties came to be started in the 1600s. That's when Europeans traveling to the New World carried shipments of grapes along with them. And they would bring with them cuttings of their French varieties. Lucy Morton is a viticulturist, that is, someone who specializes in growing grapes, as well as what's called an ampelographer. I've never had a single person know what that is, so it's, it's pretty rare. It's grapevine botany. It's how to identify grapes by their leaves. She gave me this long lesson in grape botany. 
Traditionally in Europe, you only have this one species of grapes called Vitis vinifera. So if you hear about pure European wine, that's Vitis vinifera. Think Pinot Noir, Sauvignon Blanc, Cabernet, and so on. So when Europeans came to the Americas, they planted cuttings from their Vitis vinifera vines that eventually crossed with the Native American grapevines. Those grapes would grow and flower. If you know how a new grape variety is made, it's made with pollination and seeds. So these vines would live for a few years, flower. The pollen would go to whatever wild grapes were growing, you know, in the woods. And Native American grape varieties were really resistant to disease. And so these two different species of grapes grow and evolve together, creating Franco-American hybrid vines. Then, in the late 1800s, these hybrid varieties made their way back to France. They were mostly planted in Europe for decorative use. But they carried this tiny critter, phylloxera. So phylloxera is a little teeny, teeny weeny, bright yellow root louse, but it can also live in leaves, that's indigenous to North America. These teeny tiny bugs weren't harmful to the American vines. Those were naturally resistant to the bugs. But for the pure Vitas vinifera vines, they were absolutely lethal. So when these phylloxera-infested American hybrid varieties landed in Europe in the 1800s, European Vitas vinifera varieties were decimated. By the late 1800s, nearly half of France's wine production died. So that brought the great tragedy of the death of millions of acres of classic European vineyards in the 19th century. It was not that long ago. And, you know, back then, one in seven Frenchmen earned a living in the wine business in one way or another. So it was devastating to their economy. Winemakers across Europe ripped up and burned their family's ancient vineyards. They were trying to control the spread of phylloxera, but it was just too late. It was a devastating time for vineyards everywhere. But winemakers would find the antidote to their phylloxera problem in an unlikely place, the American hybrid vines. Yes, the infestation culprit would also be their savior. Because the hybrid vines were resistant, viticulturalists grafted French vines to the immune hybrid rootstocks. They could grow those in their backyard and not have to spray them or anything and not have to graft them. So they became very important for French farmers to have on their backyard trellis. They also inspired new flavor experimentation. People tend to focus on the disease back and forth situation, but really it was horticultural curiosity, it was looking for new flavors. So winemakers started hearing about these hybrid vines and planted them all over the country. Unfortunately, not everyone approved of having, quote, American vines sit on French soil. There was kind of this element of that the, the American vines were inferior. They weren't pure French. But people in the village of Beaumont didn't care. In the late 1800s, six varieties of the Franco-American hybrid grapes became the dominant grapes in the Cévennes region. Crenton, Isabella, Herbemont, Noah, Othello, and Jacquet. 
These vines liked the weather there. They adapted well to the soil, could withstand what can often be harsh weather conditions, and got a nice amount of sunlight thanks to the fact the vineyards are placed on a slope, creating a rich, flavorful wine. In fact, for half a century, these vines thrived not just in Beaumont, but all over France. But in the 20th century, Europe's traditional Vitis vinifera made a comeback, thanks to grafting techniques which applied the phylloxera-resistant American rootstocks to the vinifera. And by 1934, the government banned the six varieties of hybrid grapes, full stop. They had this whole system where they had authorized varieties or partially authorized varieties, and they kind of set term limits on vineyards with certain varieties where you were allowed to keep growing them, but you couldn't replant them. And so the question becomes, why would the government do this? The French government has long been known for keeping tight regulations over the country's wine industry to basically control and protect the price of wine. For example, there was this wine surplus in the 1930s, and so prices were going down, and the government passed a series of bills known as the Statue du Vin, or wine statue, meant to protect the industry from sinking. What's interesting about this statute is that it's been repealed and reinstated multiple times over the last century. When there's not enough production, it gets repealed. When there's overproduction, it's reinstated. All that to say, the French government has a trend of changing the laws depending on the nation's circumstances at any given point in time. And in 1934, when the hybrid vines were banned, France was having an overproduction problem. The government was looking to cut the fat, so to speak, and many suspected that the Franco-American hybrids were an easy target. So much for being the saviors. Really, this whole story of the grapes and of the classification and of the, you know, this grape variety is legal and this isn't, had to do with the French trying to get a grip on their viticultural economy. Now, some farmers tried to secretly hang on to their hybrid vines, but a big frost in 1956 wiped out 90% of the country's vineyards. And here's where things get tricky. So by 1956, overproduction of wine is no longer an issue. Now, because of the frost, you obviously have underproduction. But the French government kept the ban on Franco-American hybrids. So the question is, why? First, France says the wine made from Franco-American hybrids causes, quote, madness. They even pumped out a ton of money on an ad campaign warning about the potential dangerous side effects. They said wine from these grapes had excess amounts of methyl alcohol, therefore causing things like hallucinations, personality changes, you get the idea. And then, France said... Furthermore, these hybrid wines are banned because the wine produced from these grapes just tasted bad. Eventually, the European Union adopts the French law on the hybrids, so they become illegal across the continent. So I've lived in France for over six years, and let me tell you, the French love their rules. The rules are not meant to be questioned. Like two years ago when I wanted to change phone providers, I couldn't just cancel my existing contract online. I had to send a formal letter with tracking via snail mail. 
The same rule applies for when you want to cancel any kind of subscription or contract here. I've always thought this was crazy, but to my French friends, it's just the rules. So I get that the French outlawed hybrid vines, and rules are rules, but I kept getting hung up on the rationale. Claims of madness or poor-tasting wine, I don't know, it seems thin. And apparently it seemed thin to Hervé as well. So back to the early 1990s in Beaumont. Hervé's just taken over this vineyard from his neighbors, Jules and Paul. And he's just also found out the wine his neighbors have been growing for decades is illegal. But these claims from the government seem so off. He's tasted the wine. It didn't make him mad. He didn't hallucinate. And he likes the taste. But even if he didn't, is that an acceptable excuse to render the vines illegal? Taste is totally subjective. And uh, to imagine that this one is the best, not right. It doesn't work, really. Uh, it's imagination. So Hervé devises a plan. First step, look into the French government's claims that the wine induces madness. And the first thing we do is looking dangerous or not. Right. Hervé funded a chemical analysis study in the late 90s that looked into the government claims about excess levels of methyl alcohol or any other dangerous ingredients. And uh, we make analysis by a very big laboratory who, who look for everything inside the wine. So he gets the results and they come back clean. There are normal levels of methyl alcohol, meaning less than 0.02% by volume. And there's no other, quote, dangerous compounds in the wine. I should mention there was some pesticide residue found. Apparently, in their later years, Jules and Paul sprayed the grapes with glyphosate, a common pesticide, because that was the trend in those days. But as I mentioned, the hybrid vines don't actually need the pesticides, so the point is moot. So back to the study, Hervé is relieved because the results show that his hybrid wine is safe to drink. But that does not mean that his fight is over. Because the really hard part of this fight is the second part of the equation, the taste. Remember, the French government claimed that wine didn't taste good enough to be made and sold in France. It's illegal because it's not good. The taste, we don't like the taste. It's illegal, illegal. Stupid. So he sends a letter to France's agricultural minister. This is the late 90s at this point. And he thinks he actually has a good shot of getting his way because he actually knows the agricultural minister's chief of staff. She happens to be a friend of his wife. But kind of abruptly, she tells him she can't do anything. Because the story of the cow, uh, crazy cow. Mad cow disease, which, if you can remember, is that fatal brain disease found in cattle, mostly in the UK, which then spreads to humans, which led to the European Union banning British beef for several years. The whole ordeal put a lot of pressure on the EU to be extremely cautious with food regulations. But the French agricultural minister's chief of staff gives Hervé some advice. She said to me, you have to go to commission, European Commission. She tells him to write a letter to the European Commission. Because at this point, this ban on Franco-American hybrids had become an EU law, not just a French law. She says going straight to the top dogs may speed things up. But whatever you do, she says... Don't make something too complicated. Make something simple because for the guy, they are bored from reading 40 pages of a document. It's fatiguing. Keep the letter short and sweet. 
These guys have hundreds of letters they have to go through every week, so don't get so caught in the details. So he writes this concise one-page letter and attaches the findings of his study. Two weeks later, he gets a response from Brussels. Uh, the wild is forbidden for selling, but uh, it's allowed for family. That's all. In other words, the wine is illegal to sell, but he can produce it for personal consumption. That kicks off this decades-long back and forth. That never really goes anywhere. Sometimes he gets these long-winded responses. Sometimes he gets no response at all. At no point, however, does he get a letter saying they'll overturn the law. In the interim, an acquaintance of Hervé's comes up with a loophole. He's not allowed to sell the wine commercially, but he can sell it for personal use or as part of an association. Like a club. Club members would pay this fee. Then he gives each member a certain number of bottles of his wine every year. And that's what Hervé has been doing since 1993. He's called the association Cuvée de Vigne d'Anton, or Vineyard of the Past. So he's selling the wine to some very loyal fans, but he's not technically selling the wine commercially. See? A loophole. And I should say, he has a very loyal customer base because people really do love the American blood wine, especially Hervé's friends in Beaumont. Last pickup. Vendor will be finished today. <laughs> Only the wine. <laughs> How long does it normally last, the Vendange? <laughs> four days we use. Every year. It's only once a year. Four, four days, yes. once a year. Mm. And that's enough wine for the year. Because of this club, Hervé is able to produce about 3,800 bottles of wine every year. So every fall, he gathers a group of 10 volunteers, mostly his friends, to help pick all the grapes from their vines. I am uh, harvesting some grapes to make uh, some wine. This is one of Hervé's friends, Giraud. We had a chat as he was using these cutting shears to pick the hybrid grapes, a mix of Jacquet, Clanton, and Isabella. I disagree with this, uh, this politics. I think it's totally... Uh, this kind of grapes, uh, like Jacquet, Clanton, uh, Isabelle, have been prohibited in a way quite uh, randomly. It doesn't make sense, really. Making this clandestine wine is a long process. When I went to Beaumont to visit Hervé, we spent the morning picking hundreds of kilos of grapes. Then we brought them back to Hervé's lab, which is located under his house. First, the grapes go through this spirally machine that separates them from their vines and crushes them. Then the liquid moves through this tube and into this giant fermentation tank where it sits for eight days. I think it will be a nice one. It's a good one? Yes. <laughs> Until it's ready to drink. So, Rebecca, what does the wine taste like? Did you like it? Well, I liked it. It was different, but I really enjoyed the wine. It has a very deep, almost black currant, full-bodied flavor. But I'm not a wine expert, and I was curious to see what an expert sommelier would have to say about this wine. <laughs> Bonjour, So I brought a bottle back to Paris with me. After the break, Rebecca puts American blood wine to the test. 
Many people are stuck at home, including us at America's Test Kitchen. Welcome to America's Test Kitchen at home. It's a good day today. Just gonna put this in our food processor and buzz it for five to seven pulses until it's coarsely chopped. <laughs> I'm gonna plug it in too, that's always good. And again, things may catch on fire. It happens. Holy cow, I'm doing this. Okay, I got this. Which means a lot of us are spending more time in our kitchens. Upgrade your kitchen with Kohler's Iron Ridge Farmhouse Kitchen Sink. It has a sloped bottom and it's made of heavy-duty enameled cast iron. This sink is designed to stand up to the hardest working kitchens and look beautiful while doing so. If you're cooking at home more than ever, you might as well enjoy it. Learn more at Kohler.com. For 30 years, OXO has made thoughtfully designed kitchen tools to make every day better. And senior product manager Jamie Levy says the new OXO Brew 8-cup coffee maker can make your coffee better, too. We take so much pride in the work we do here, the thought we put into our products, the products we put on the market. The feature that is designed to allow you to brew into a mug is really a great feature. It's nice to be able to brew directly into your mug and you don't have to like hack the machine to be able to make that work. It actually was designed to allow that. Brew a cup right into your cup with the single serve setting on OXO Brew's new eight cup coffee maker. Shop OXO Brew products at OXO.com slash brew. That's OXO.com slash brew. OXO, better guaranteed. Hi, Proof listeners. The holiday season is here, and in New England, that means all things cranberry. Now, today, I'm calling my America's Test Kitchen colleague, Sam Block, to hear how she likes to use cranberries. Hey, Sam. Hey, Bridget. So, I've got cranberries in my recipes. I've got cranberries in decorations, that's for sure. What about cranberries for the home bar? Feeling like a cocktail. Well, I have just the recipe for you. It's called the New Englander. And it's a combination of cranberry shrub syrup, a little bit of lime juice, and some seltzer to make it nice and effervescent. So there's no alcohol in it? There is none. I love that. Even though it's spirit-free, it still has lots of holiday spirit in it. Get in the spirit this holiday season with the help of Ocean Spray Cranberries. For more information and recipes, visit Oceanspray.com. Hey, Proof listeners, it's Jack Bishop, the tasting expert at America's Test Kitchen, and I'm here to talk to you about Miyoko's new Pepper Jack Vegan Cheese. When I'm reviewing ingredients, I want to know it's in a product, and I want to know how it's made, especially if I'm using it to cook for my family. And you shouldn't need a PhD in food science in order to understand the ingredient list. But Miyoko's is very transparent about their cheese. They start by making a plant milk with oats and legumes, and then they add cultures and ferment it, just like traditional dairy cheese making. Then they finish it off with organic chilies for that quintessential pepper jack bite. So what you end up with is a complex cheese flavor and a classic melty texture without any of the dairy. And you can read the label. Miyoko's pepper jack cheese is good for the planet and good for you. Learn more at miyokos.com. That's M-I-Y-O-K-O-S dot com. Before the break, our reporter Rebecca Rossman visited a clandestine winemaker in the Beaumont region of France. So 
One of the main reasons that the government purports that American blood wine should be illegal is because they claim it tastes bad or not good enough to be French wine. And I wanted to see if there was any merit to this idea that the quality was poor. So back in Paris, I took it to Montmartre. Montmartre, as you may know, is that hilltop village where you have the famous Sacré-Cœur church. But it also has a very interesting wine history. Before it became a part of Paris in the late 1800s, Montmartre was this provincial place. Think lots of farmers, windmills, and fields. You had a lot of winemakers here, too. It's home of the oldest vineyard left in Paris. It's called Cros de Montmartre. And this vineyard is located just next to this restaurant I visited. Uh, my name is Luc. I'm the owner with my father of a family restaurant. Luc and Patrick Frechebou are a father and son duo who run La Bonne Franquette, a restaurant that has been in their family for nearly 50 years. And they know a lot about wine. We have maybe 200, 300 wine. For me, a good wine is a wine which be drank by the clients. If the clients order wine and they are four on one bottle and they don't finish it, for me, it's not a good wine. This is my bet, my goal. So I asked them to do this taste test of the wine with me. I was careful, though, to keep myself tight-lipped and not reveal the whole backstory and the fact I was providing them with a bottle of illegal wine. And boy, the whole thing made me nervous. And I have to be honest here, I was really rooting for the American blood wine at this point. So Luke and Patrick had a whole system for tasting wine. So when you taste a wine, I mean, the classic process, it's to analyze in three dimensions with the sight, the smell, and of course the taste. Uh, pff, what we can tell, it's pretty, pretty dark. Yeah, you see that the, the light doesn't, doesn't come through. I was already pretty intimidated just by hearing them talk. So we do the nay, where we smell it first. When you smell this, according to me, it's, c'est cuit. It's, le, le, le vin, c'est, le vin, hein? C'est d'accord? Ouais, très mûr. Very ripe. Very ripe. Uh, the, the nose, the, the first nose telling me this. As Luke is saying the wine is very ripe, he's staring at his glass with a kind of confused, slightly unpleasant look. But to make any real judgments, he says... You have to taste. Good attack. L'attaque est... <laughs> so some, some, sometimes after... It depends because... There is so... L'attaque est Powerful, powerful. Il n'est pas flatteur au premier abord. So Patrick, Luke's father, says the wine doesn't flatter him at first taste. Oh boy. I think I need to, to get it back a little bit. This doesn't sound so promising. Right? But then they finish and I ask... Would you? Would it be this be something you would sell ever? For sure, for sure, definitely. That's why we are. He's taking the the photo, the pictures of the of the of the. How do you call this? The, the sticker. Label, the label. The label. The label. At first, I thought maybe they were being polite, but after finishing the whole bottle, they even asked about calling Hervé up to inquire about buying some of the wine to sell in the restaurant. That's when I came clean. 
I explain the story of the wine's clandestine roots. If they did want to sell the wine in the restaurant, they would technically be breaking the law. But based on our tasting and the test result from earlier, it seems the official reasons that the EU and France have provided aren't exactly meritable. And so I asked if they had any idea why this ban might really exist. I don't know. We have to dig a little bit deeper so to know the explanation. I don't know. There was kind of this element of, you know, that the American vines were inferior. Here's Lucy Morton again. She's talking about the landscape of French wine in 1934 when the ban against American hybrid varieties first started. They weren't pure French. There was, as I said, there was a sort of a, a patriotic, I mean, there are different ways you could look at it, classist, racist, whatever, but certainly there was a snobism. A snobbish, even nationalist undertone of French or European superiority and American inferiority. So, you know, it was in trying to legislate taste as opposed to authenticity that the Europeans went wrong. You know, just just, just to repeat that, to try to legislate and judge for someone else what's a good wine or not, that's a value judgment. One of the first people to call this idea out publicly was Lucy's mentor, the late wine historian P.L. Gallet. Frankly, if you're in France, you don't care about the um, American species except for one time at, in the whole life of the vineyard, and that's when you're selecting a phylloxera-resistant rootstock. There you care. The rest of the time, nobody gives a flying flippy. But Gallet did, and he knew about the history, and he wrote about the French-American varieties and got deeply into the world of Vetus, not just fine wine grapes, i.e. Vetus vinifera. Gallet, who died last year at the age of 98, became somewhat of a legend in trying to challenge this bad reputation of the hybrid wines the government worked so hard to push forward. In 2018, the European Commission proposed the idea of allowing member states to lift the ban on the six hybrid vines, quote, which were forbidden years ago for reasons that some consider no longer to be valid. But in France, the ban still persists. This is a complicated story to report because it seems to really be coming down to this amorphous question. What is French wine and who gets to decide? The argument that the American blood wine isn't good or even that it isn't French wine doesn't really make sense to me because I spent days with French people in a French town making wine that has become important to the cultural identity of that place. How is that not French? There's still no clear reason why this wine is not legal to sell. And I tried to get a statement from the French government for this story. In the end, I didn't receive a response. Hervé agrees with Lucy that the rule is nonsense. As he says, grape seeds do not have nationalities. I will say, for plant, American or French doesn't exist. But I should add, Hervé is pretty confident that this law is going to change soon even within the next couple of years. Hybrid wines are becoming increasingly popular because they're so resistant to diseases like phylloxera and they don't need pesticides. So hybrids are a, quote, 
naturally natural wine, so to speak. Organic. And that's the way things are heading for the wine industry right now. I met this one volunteer at the Vendage, Damien, who's in his mid-20s. He told me he came all the way from Burgundy with his girlfriend to see how Hervé's wine is made. This is the exact kind of wine he wants to grow and sell one day as a winemaker. Um, because we love the place and uh, we love the potential of this kind of grapes. So, and we love the, the, the potential to create wine without anything in the vineyard and in the winery too. Meaning without pesticides? Yeah, because these grapes are totally can live without pesticides. So if hybrid wines are the future and it's what consumers really want to buy and spend lots of money on, then perhaps it will soon be in the national interest for France to allow hybrid wines. And Hervé thinks this simple fact will be enough to finally shift the law in his favor. But I will be very proud to be the one who starts the story because... At the beginning, all the farmers were uh, laughing when they said me. They called me hybrids. <laughs> but now, they once they plant some, some hybrids because they understand that the, the future will be probably uh, coming through hybrid. Hervé says this is France, where liberty is a part of the national slogan, right? Liberté, égalité, fraternité. So, liberty. <laughs> People choose. They like, they don't like. That's their own choose. Right. Nobody has to say you to say them. You drink this or this. They can choose. I mean, it doesn't get any more French than having the liberty to choose your own wine. Thanks to Rebecca Rosman for bringing us this story. If you'd like to see photos from this story, we put them up on our website for you. That's www.americastestkitchen.com slash proof. Check it out. And if you like proof, then be sure to subscribe wherever you listen so you'll get new episodes as soon as they drop. And while you're there, why not leave us a rating or write us a review? It really helps other people find the show. Proof is hosted and produced by me, Bridget Lancaster. Sarah Joyner is our managing producer, our executive producer is Caitlin Kelleher. Associate producer, Caroline Rickard. Scoring, sound design, and mixing by Matt Boynton of Ultraviolet Audio. Brian Campbell of Signal Sounds composed our theme music. Additional music by Kyle Forrester and Jordan Pearson. Post-production supervisor is Hen Margolis. Our production manager is Diane Knox. Fact-checking and additional research by Angela Yang. Jack Bishop is a clandestine wine and chief creative officer of America's Test Kitchen. David Nussbaum is our CEO. Thanks again to our sponsors, Kohler, Oxo, Miyoko's Creamery, Ocean Spray, and NakedWines.com. Proof is a production of America's Test Kitchen. <laughs>